Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate podcast. I'm here with my co-host, David Moser, calling in from Oklahoma. How you doing, David? Uh, great. I have just accepted uh, that the rest of the year is not going to go anywhere. My expectations are at zero, and so I have a nice sort of Taoist sense of attachment, detachment right now. So I'm, I'm great. Uh, with us is Laszlo Montgomery, who many of our listeners know as the voice behind the very famous China History Podcast. How you doing, Laszlo? Great. Thanks for having me. More than just the voice. <laughs> that's that's very true. I was I was just we were just chatting before we went uh, we started taping that I've been listening to to Laszlo's podcast for for a long time and and it's it's always kind of a trip to put when someone you whose voice is so familiar to you uh, you actually get to see them um, semi in person at least in this point in this case. Uh, through the miracle of Zoom. Laszlo, you're actually celebrating the 10th anniversary of the China History Podcast coming up uh, this year. Is that right? Yeah, coming up this June. It'll be 10 years in sometime in June, mid-June. I'm not sure it was. And uh, yeah, that was the first uh, episode and got it all started 10 years ago. Still going strong. What first gave you the idea of doing a China History Podcast? And did you realize when you started out that very first episode that you would eventually, over the course of a decade, pretty much chronicle um, the entirety or as close as is possible on a podcast, the entirety of Chinese civilization? I didn't think that big. <laughs> yeah, I just started it. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, uh, 2010, podcasting was still, you know, pretty new. There was uh, in the history uh, category. There was uh, Dan Carlin, Lars Brownworth, and uh, the guy that really inspired me, Bob Packett, History According to Bob. I used to listen to that guy. I could do that. <laughs> so so I, uh, I, 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 trying to overcome the, the, the technical aspects was so difficult. I'm not a very uh, technical kind of a person, but I did overcome it and I got it started. And, you know, what I originally envisioned the, the China History Podcast to be and what it became is sort of two different things. Uh, you know, I wanted to do all these quick uh, 10, 15, 20 minute episodes on, you know, like the greatest hits of China. Uh, it, 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 was, it wasn't enough time to really, uh, to really tell the story. So I, so in the, like the first 80, 90 episodes, or really actually like the first hundred it's sort of like the, the the old China history podcast. I think starting with uh, with that history of Hong Kong series, that's when I think it's it started to change more and become what it is now. Well, for those of you who who don't really know the podcast, uh, I guess we could just recommend it right off the bat here because uh, definitely, if you haven't heard uh, Laszlo's podcast, you should definitely check it out. And the strong point is the fact that he does have many, many sort of epic series in the podcast. Gives you the scope of the of the of the topic in question. You've done one on Chinese tea. That must be at least ten parts. Chinese philosophy, the, the the Taiping Rebellion. There's one you did, I remember, on Whitey Smith and the history of Shanghai jazz, which I hope that we can cover in a, in a later podcast. Yeah, the, the the great thing about the podcast is if you're interested in a topic, uh, he's he's got a multi-part uh, epic scope that you can dive into. What are you working? What's the latest thing you're working on now? I'm doing a uh, history of Xinjiang. Yeah, I thought this thing was going to be able to cover this in about four or five episodes, but I'm working on part seven right now, and uh, I'm only in the Tang Dynasty, so I got to really... Uh 
get this thing moving. <laughs> this thing might do, it'll, it'll definitely go more than 10 uh, episodes. But yeah, Xinjiang, uh, great history. I start with the uh, Tarim mummies and sort of taking, and it's sort of Xinjiang history as it relates to China. So I, I try and uh, limit it to that from the Chinese historical perspective. I mean, it's a huge topic. I always think of uh, Peter Perdue's book, China Marches West, which is just one of the great books of Chinese history, or at least Qing imperial history, but it's a doorstopper. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. I have it queued up for when I get to the Qing dynasty, which uh, might be in July or August. You're thinking of new topics. What are some of the greatest hits? Do you ever look back at some of the, the, the episodes or the series that have been most downloaded? Yeah, the most popular ones in terms of downloads, I get pretty accurate statistics. Uh, you know, the mass market topics, Four Great Inventions, Opium War, uh, History of Tea were really big. Thing, the, the, the shows I did, the one-off shows I did on the Hokkien, Diochus, Toysan, uh, Walled City, those, those really uh, got a lot more than usual but in terms of the series there's the you know i did this history of philosophy this nine-part series and i thought boy no one is gonna like that right but i i felt compelled to do it because chinese philosophy is so i guess you could say it's pretty important in terms of uh history and i i thought uh, nobody's gonna like that but that turned out to be Probably the after tea, the biggest uh, series I've done. The, the the Jewish refugees in Shanghai was was pretty big. And another surprise, the one on Tang poetry, which I thought, oh man, no one's going to listen to that. But that was another surprise hit. Well, actually, it shouldn't be surprising. You you take these uh, hoary old topics that are usually uh, embedded in seven hundred page books, and you bring them to life. You 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 put them in everyday language, and you obviously uh, uh, you spend. I know you spend a lot of time delving into them months before you actually start the recording. So by the time you, you start to put out the episodes, you're deeply in it enough so that you're able to explain it, revel in it, talk about it in your own in your own style, in your own language. And, and I think that's that's a sort of the thing that uh, Jeremiah and I would aspire to in, you know, in being a great teacher is you have to be able to channel it through your own experience and your own interest and your own passion. And you, it comes across in the podcast. They're really entertaining. Laszlo, maybe just, if you can, briefly kind of walk us through the process when you get inspired by an idea and think, hey, this would be a really good podcast topic. Sometimes I will finish an episode and I don't even have anything planned for the next topic, so it'll be a real rush. But most of the time, I have it, uh, I have, I'll, I'll have uh, an idea what I'm going to do. A lot of it comes from listener, listener recommendations. It'll say, hey, you know, can you do this or can you do that topic? And a lot of them, I've, I've you know, when I started this thing 10 years ago, I wrote down like about 150 topics. I'm always adding more topics in all what uh, people write to me and uh, always giving me uh, suggestions. Sometimes I'll just run with it right away. You know, the thing with Xinjiang, that was on the original list I did at the very beginning. And it, there's just been so much, uh, there's been so much, uh, so many requests for this. So that's uh, sometimes just a recommendation. I'll just go with that. It's like, oh, it's been recommended so many times. I'll just go with it now. After Xinjiang, I already know what I'm going to do when this is done. I'll come to a topic. It's just, you know, going back and doing research. I got all my history books, the, the Google and everything uh, and all these other resources and just 
take notes and write a pretty tight outline and then just present it. So, Lazo, your involvement in China started way back uh, in the just after the Carter era in 1980, I guess, or so. And it's it's always refreshing to hear you talk uh, about the the story of the the oft-told story about the 30 years of reform and opening up, but usually given to us by gray-haired academics uh, from an overview of 10,000 feet. You're someone who really saw the evolution and this, uh, especially the trade relation from the ground, from the trenches, I guess you could say, working for Chinese manufacturers who were making these products for mass market, the direct that we buy at Kmart and Walmart. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background in China, what you were doing and and how you've seen that relation uh, evolve a little bit through your own eyes over the years? I started studying Chinese in 79, and then it was in 89 that I moved out to Hong Kong and got into the business. I'm still in it, uh, 31 years. Yeah, uh, I worked for three China manufacturers. They were all public companies. Two were in Hong Kong, one's in China. I'm still with that one. Been with them about going on 19 years. They're in Ningbo. The whole arc of my career was 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 in manufacturing general merchandise by Hua. That's that was my that was my world. Not not the really sexy stuff, high tech textiles, chemicals, and all, and all that stuff. My my world was you know the stuff that gave China a bad reputation. The uh, all those light industrial goods you see at uh, Walmart, Costco, Target, Staples, Depot. All the dollar chains, stuff like that. That's been my world. I lived in I lived in Hong Kong in the '90s. I was there for the the last eight years before the handover, and then I left in '98. Uh, and that's where I got my education. Got to it was it was just such a great time the '90s, and I it was so good to to be in Hong Kong, and I, it was just such a historic time. I f- could feel it. Well, I mean, but still, I mean, having worked in, having had that kind of business experience and also having taken this like, incredible deep dive into Chinese history, you know, it's one of the things I think about is it's, you may be one of the, the, the best people to kind of talk a little bit about also, you know, what's going on right now, state of especially U.S.-China relations. And as David points out, we hear a lot about this uh, from the perspective of academics and from the media and from, you know, uh, politicians and officials. But I'm kind of curious. I mean, I know you still have uh, a hand in the game, you know, at um, in the business world. And I was wondering, from your perspective, how do you see things? How have things been for you? What do you What do you see the future as? Is it Is it as bleak as it looks like? Whenever I, um, God help me, go on Twitter. It's so depressing to read Twitter. It's sort of like a car accident. You you got it. You you can't not turn away. It's. Uh, <laughs> It's it's uh, it's something else. I a few years ago, I, I it was in 2018. I helped my company open up a uh, e-commerce operation here, just selling the 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 just the worst of made in China. Do you know when you're when you're dealing when you're shipping to when you're buying things from Walmart or any big box retailer, that stuff has all been inspected and is you know has to reach a certain threshold of safety and compliance in order to be sold in the market. For, with e-commerce, and it's, you know, my company is just one of, I don't know how many tens of thousands are doing this in, in the United States, just the goods are just coming straight from the China factories and going straight to the warehouse. Nobody's inspecting this stuff. These are, a lot of times, are factories that are not even near 
good enough to uh, you know to ship to a respectable retailer. And uh, I sort of you know call it Drek and whatnot, but it is just flying out. It comes in, it's gone within a week. Uh, my warehouse is empty. I thought. Wow, you know, it's tough times ahead, and you know, I'm telling my people in in, in Ningbo, I'm thinking, hey, you better slow it down. I think, uh, you know, once these uh, stimulus checks are all spent, nobody's going to be buying any more of this stuff. But I don't see that at all. It's like every day, it, what, what I ship in a day is like uh, what we used to do in a week. I mean, really, ever since the trouble started here in the states, you know, say uh, in March. Wow, sales have been unbelievable. I guess people are stuck at home and just buying all this, uh, you know, buying every you're doing all this online shopping. Well, that's 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 sort of amazing because you, we always hear that China wants to sort of get out of this factory model of the world and move up the value chain and of course develop their own quality brands. And yet this sounds to me like they're still in the same old uh, rut of producing these uh, quickly produced low quality goods and it seems like the US appetite for them hasn't diminished. What's going on here? This doesn't sound like progress to me. It doesn't even sound like evolution. It just sounds like more of the same old that's strange. Uh, yeah, you know, this is a facet of the of the business. China manufacturing is is, is a huge uh, is a huge thing, and this is just one aspect of it. And there's a there's just a, just just an insatiable demand in the United States for all these things. I mean, today I you know I'll go out there and look at the dock and see hey, what's what's going out. Yeah, to just today, there's like two pallets, like 40 pieces of these, you know, these little things that go over the toilet, you know, the, with, the, with the shelves, you stick it up your toilet and it's like one <laughs> yeah. of these like vanity things. It's like, oh, my God, who's buying these things? And just all these, these little accent furniture and patio furniture and garden stuff and baby items and toys and... I can't keep it in stock. You know, when I hear, when I read, uh, you know, in some places or I hear people say, ah, you know, uh, we're not going to buy, Americans aren't going to buy Made in China anymore, not after this. It's like, yeah, right. Yeah, I think as, uh, as long as it's out there at these prices, some people will say, I won't, you know, they'll make a conscious decision, I'm not going to buy Made in China anymore, but... That's the minority. I think, uh, you know, the stuff that I'm selling out of my warehouse, that's, these are perennials. They're never going to go out of style. And it doesn't matter. Even if you move it to Vietnam or Indonesia or Thailand, those, those factories are owned by Chinese, too. So, you know, there, there's no escaping it. There'll be a lot of talk. But as long as Walmart and all the big retailers are, are buying uh, made in China, if that's what's in the stores, people will buy it. So, Lazlo, do you, do you think this, this all this talk of decoupling, and as you say, the the aversion to China now and the trade, uh, the, the the breaking off of trade negotiations, it sounds like what you're saying is from what you see that a lot of that's bluster and talk, but this essential, the essential dynamic of the of the U.S. China trade relationship is still going strong, and it's and it's got legs for the near future. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, you know, down it down at the level I'm at. You know, I'm not I'm not in these kinds of categories that. You know, people saying, "Well, you know, we got to move this back to the states." You know, for this kind 
kind of stuff, cheap patio furniture, toys. There's really nowhere else to take it uh, without feeling some sort of pain. And I think that everything is going to keep going on the way it was before for all all these cheap items, all these, you know, $25 at retail and under stuff, the stuff everyone disparages, and that gives China this... Uh, you know, this reputation, which I think is not deserved. I mean, China obviously is a good place to manufacture for many other things. And I'm sure the quality is equal to anywhere else, you know, in the world. But, you know, for this for this kind of, you know, general merch, it's <laughs> it's not China's fault. A lot of it is the retailer's fault, too, by uh, squeezing the prices uh, beyond belief. So, you know, they're always going to try and cut corners and people are buying it. I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I'm incredulous every day when I see what's going. And a lot of it is going to small town America. You know, I looked at, you know, I go out there and I look at the I look, look at the labels and go, where, where is this junk going to? And it's, it's all towns I've never heard of and small town, uh, small town America. They love it. They love it. You know, one of the things we're seeing right now, obviously, is a ratcheting up of the rhetoric on every possible side, you know, in China, uh, towards the rest of the world, inside the United States, towards China. And it's not just um, the Republicans and Donald Trump. It's also even, you know, the Democrats and the Joe Biden campaign are feeling the need to kind of respond to this. But it sounds to me like, you know, even even the people in small town America who presumably a lot of this, uh, these advertisements, this, this narrative is being pitched to are the ones who are engaged in the China trade, if, if, if only unwittingly, that make this kind of decoupling really difficult. And so I'm kind of curious from your perspective, you know, thinking both in terms of the businessman and thinking in terms of history, is really this kind of decoupling feasible? And you know, where are we going from here? Are we just in a rut or is this the new normal? You know, there's a swath of American society that's going to hate China till the end of time. And, and they have their counterparts in China, too, you know, and it's it's uncomfortable now for the first time to be seeing this invective being thrown from the other side. I don't know about you, but my feelings are hurt. But that vociferous group aside of just forever China haters, I it's not pleasant, but it's not a pleasant time right now. But I hope that, you know, one day this is going to come to an end or it will reach, uh, or reach a certain point where I hope, you know, there can be some intelligent and rational dialogue that could be encouraged where both sides, China and the U.S., you know, where people just wade out into all this toxic waste and slime and poisonous slurry and go in there and just go find those nuggets of truth you know, amidst the most vile accusations that have been thrown at each other. And we go and we find these things and we address them and let both sides reflect and perform some self-examination. I mean, I don't, this will never happen on the government to government level, but there's, I think there's a lot of respected voices in China and in the U.S., you know, who can get this dialogue moving in a, in a, in a positive way in a positive direction. You know, I think both sides have a lot to own up to. No one likes to admit they're wrong, you know, especially when your your country's face is at stake before the whole world. But I think it has to be done. It's not certainly not going to be done right now, but uh, however much longer this is going to last, another two weeks, another eight months, 
but it has to be done one day. We got to address it. There's 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 truth on both sides. There's no sense denying it. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is somewhat optimistic from your your view on the ground. And I think speaking for Jeremiah and I, I think that we also kind of feel like uh, the 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 relationship between the people who cooperate on a routine basis, whether it be in academia or in business, are still pretty much on board with the with the uh, with the China U.S. relationship. I mean, they still see it as a productive thing, something that's worthwhile, and something. That they're getting a lot out of, in some sense, money, and in other cases, in our case, uh, knowledge, information, and uh, meaning in life, I guess. All, you know, it's, it sounds like that this is one of the, just one more chapter in the U.S.-China relations, where um, on the surface, it's it's all antagonism, and there's is this a, a threat of a rupture at any moment. But the basic relationship, which is really people to people on the ground, is still is still pretty strong. China and Chinese people and U.S. people have an affinity toward each other that that's pretty strong. Evidently, yeah, they're being shouted down right now. Uh, you know, that's that's not what you're what what you're seeing. But I, I I heard a new term today. I never heard this before. You ever heard of uh, uh, the enablers? <laughs> are you you know we are enable enablers. We're you know I guess that's American businessmen, politician, and liberals. You know who enabled China to you know take us to the cleaners or, or, or what have you. Yeah, you know, everyone's learned a lot of lessons. Hey, mistakes were made. I mean, there's I, if 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 in uh, 1979 we knew then what we know now, we would have done things differently, or or at least been more vigilant uh, about certain things. But hey, this is where we are, and this is what's going on in the United States. This is what's going on in China and in the whole world. You know, right now in the in the midst of this crisis, everyone is screeching at each other about every conceivable kind of accusation. This will pass, and I think uh, cooler heads will have to come out and figure out a way to move forward and address all these things so that people will shut up. You know, I, I really hope you're right. And I, but I, I have to say, I'm growing increasingly pessimistic about this year at the very least. I think, you know, one of the, the, the dangers here in Beijing and in China is that you know, the economic growth, all the opportunities have helped to tamp down some of the stronger feelings of kind of xenophobia. I think in a situation where the the party is feeling uh, threatened in the international arena by all of the rhetoric that's kind of coming its way, some of it, a lot of it undeserved, some of it not so undeserved, that the temptation to kind of resort to nationalist narrative, nationalist rhetoric is, is going to be really, it's going to be too much to resist. And I worry about what the implications are in China for, for people who are doing business here or living here and for China's place in the world. I mean, especially as we get a campaign underway in the U.S. in which the China, the, 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 what people are going to say about China is, is just going to be increasingly negative. And of course, if we've, no, if we've seen anything, it's that the official voices of China tend to be rather thin-skinned when it comes to any criticism. And on top of that, in the U.S., it, uh, you know, we have a president who right now is kind of barging around like a wounded animal. You know, I think one of the challenges he's had with this whole coronavirus situation is it's not something that he can go after, attack, intimidate, bully. But now I think he's found 
a uh, stand-in for that in China. And I, I think as he takes his rhetoric up a couple of notches and drags the campaign with him, I think China's going to respond. And it's already, I, I believe we've moved from socially awkward to quite uncomfortable in China for, for foreigners. I don't think that's going to be going away anytime before November. So hopefully this is just one of those years, like 1999 or 2001. But I'm getting some, I'm becoming more pessimistic than I was maybe like a month or two ago. Yeah, it's pretty bad right now. What is there to say? I mean, we're all, we all read mostly the same publications and follow the same people on Twitter and <laughs> who do you follow usually who do you follow Laszlo? who's who's your your who, who are your voices that you look to when you're trying to get when you're trying to like sift out all of the you know good information from this the fire hose of bullshit that kind of comes over social media who do you who do you look to who do you read uh, you know uh, Bill Bishop is uh, a voice that I've always respected I read his newsletter every single day day and you know that's the same the same people you listen to uh all the all the uh, superstars and the uh in, in in you know china watching but so many of the people that i've read over the years writing about china aren't here anymore who's up and coming who's always going to be writing about the china of the 2020s now that the people who are writing about the china of the 2000s and the 2010s are by and large back in the u.s that's not obviously can't doesn't prevent people from writing really excellent commentary and analysis of what's going on here but it 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 is different. Yeah, I think they're I think they're up and coming. There's definitely a new a new uh, generation of sinologists, of feral sinologists, people coming out of uh, academia, uh, and also just uh, that are that are are committed to China long term. We haven't heard their voices quite yet because, quite frankly, there's so many of them now. It's going to take a take time to see which ones rise to the top. But it's kind of an interesting era, a little bit frightening because in the old days there was kind of an insular quality to the uh, the China. And community in the sense that most of their most of what we said was among ourselves in a in a sort of a bubble and didn't uh, go through osmosis into the Chinese you know information sphere. Nowadays, uh, there's so many there's so many people Chinese people on Twitter, Chinese people doing blogs and and in combination with with foreigners, and we're all sharing and sort of swimming in the same social media muck. That's that's an exciting thing. It's also a little bit scary because everything's on a hair trigger. You no longer can say things uh, with with the assumption that that it's going to only be between us and and we can not worry about hurting the feelings of the chinese people but but nowadays we're both yelling at each other you know in the same in the same sort of space in the same sort of discourse space i think something is going to come out of that which will be very valuable and 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 bring about a new sort of level of understanding sort of like what happens when a husband and wife finally address that topic they've been putting off and avoiding for the last 10 years and suddenly it all comes out and over a few days of, of rage and yelling they come to a greater understanding and they finally get it and they finally are able to move to a new epoch of you know a new period of of conciliation and greater understanding and I, I i hope that that's going to happen i think it's going to take some time and it will be messy but that's what i i predict that this is not the end of the of that relationship and it's only going to be richer and more interesting if we can get past this this phase david actually that reminds me of something i was going to ask uh, laszlo 
You've covered so many topics in Chinese history. Any kind of history is is fraught with controversies. Have you ever gotten feedback from people who were concerned with your particular take on an issue? Not, you know, something, not really. Uh, Sometimes they might take exception with my uh, the tones of my uh, my Mandarin, but uh, not not really. You know, I I'm always weary of that. Hey, you know, who wants to be criticized or attacked? But I'm very fortunate. I haven't really to anybody that much. It's just been overwhelmingly positive. And I'm careful what I say. I'm, you know, I, it's a lot of there's a lot of overseas Chinese and people in China. Uh, Chinese Americans that listen to the to the China History podcast, and you know a lot of topics. Yeah, I don't go there. You know, with Xinjiang, uh, you know, all of a sudden I, I started doing this, uh, started this series about uh, six weeks ago, and wow, all of a sudden I'm getting all these Twitter followers. Of, you know, obviously from China, <laughs> they've been on Twitter since since March and April, and you know, I, I just feel you know they're war this with this sensitive topic, and I know they're watching me. It's a full court press, you know. You know, you better not say anything about the internment camps. It's like, I'm not going to, unless they were there before 1911, <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not part of the history. I'm only taking this up to 1911. And I just think it's a, it's a beautiful history. It's just a, something that, that I've really been, I, I've loved researching it, getting great feedback. And, you know, people are basically saying, gee, I've heard, you know, I've always wanted to know about this part of the world. I, you know, didn't know a damn thing. And, but I know that so those, those two syllables, she Xinjiang, that's, that's sensitive in and of itself. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing the Xinjiang series. And, uh, you know, we often finish with a, a quick round of recommendations. And so I thought I might recommend uh, one of my favorite series uh, from Laszlo's podcast, uh, The History of Tea. I really enjoy like listening to that. I'm a, I'm a big tea drinker myself. Yeah, that tea thing, uh, that's been uh, available in Cathay Pacific's in-flight entertainment uh, system for four years already. The History of Tea, History of Philosophy. All these Chinese sayings, shows that I did. Yeah, that really gets a lot of listens. Very uh, pleased with it. It really is very popular. Well, it almost makes me want to book a flight on Cathay Pacific just to hear. Yeah, I'm telling you, that's not a reason to fly in and of itself. I don't know what is. Okay, well, for my recommendation, uh, maybe I should mention a book that's not a new book, but given our topic today, is probably one of uh, a sort of a very seminal one, which is uh, John. John Pomford's book, The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, America, China, 1776 to the Present. It, it is a good introduction to the, to the relationship in the sense that it's not just about the diplomatic and trade history of the two nations, but it's sort of more about the co-evolution of the U.S. and China. It draws on some really great sources if you're a historian, some little known, I think, or at least to me, diaries and newspaper clippings and letters and government documents and news reports, you know, each of which probably could be a book or an article in themselves. And the book just traces the ways that that those the two nations have sort of shaped their 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 own development. Yeah, a good thing to add to the podcast if you want to see where U.S. China has been and contrast it to where it is now. That's a great book to start. Yeah, I second that recommendation. Yeah, John Pomfret's book. Um, really enjoyed that one, and I've used it, you know, for in as a as a resource for some episodes. Really nice book. Well, Laszlo, thank you so much for taking time. It's always a it's a, it's a pleasure to finally hear your voice and also be able to ask you questions as well live. And so good luck with the 10th anniversary of the China History Podcast. I hope you're also staying safe there in uh, beautiful 
beautiful Southern California. As safe as I can be. Just think we had a bad day today in California, but out where I'm at, it's okay. So, hey, thanks for uh, having me on. I'm so glad you're bringing this podcast back when it when it came when it came when it first came and what is it like 2018 or when you started this or I was so excited and then you disappeared for a long time. I'm so glad you're back. Great show. You two guys are my favorites. David, thank you so much. Stay safe in Oklahoma. Yeah, you too. Let's all stay safe. Same with you, Laszlo. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you all very much. Until the next episode of Barbarians at the Gate, this is Jeremiah signing off from Beijing.